This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. And Jesus said, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I'm under until it's completed. Do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And from now on, five and one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rise in the west, you immediately say, it's going to rain. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there'll be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The gospel of the Lord. And so, Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that we would hear not just the words of men, but the words of God. And this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I want to take that as my text or a part of it from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, in particular verses 49 through 53. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1036. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, and beginning at verse 49. This morning I want to talk about Jesus the change agent. Jesus the change agent. Indeed, Jesus is a change agent. It was the Apostle Paul who wrote famously in sec to, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, the new things have come. That's change. And Jesus changes more than just individual lives. Indeed, in the first thing that Jesus mentions in our text is that Jesus will change our world as we now know it, starting with judgment. Indeed, notice again, verse 49. This is one of, these, this is one of those verses where people don't usually use them as a, a memory verse. This isn't the kind of verse that you put on the mirror in the bathroom. But Jesus said it nonetheless. Verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled, he said. And so Jesus says that um, him changing the world will begin with judgment. Anyway, that's what he appears to be saying when he refers to fire. Indeed, uh, in the Bible, fire often refers to divine judgment, and that seems to be what he's talking about here. And Jesus appears, uh, interestingly enough, to be eager to start the process of change, which begins with judgment. Notice again, verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and I would that it were already kindled. And so Jesus changing the world begins with judgment, but the thing to keep in mind is that's not where it ends, because Jesus changing the world will find its final end 
in renewal. Sometimes we do that even in our own world. Before we build the new thing, we tear down the old thing. Or we change it so fundamentally as we, it is no longer even recon, recognizable as the old thing. And we read the scriptures, the prophets spoke about these things. Jesus wasn't talking about anything new. What's interesting is, is that he's just saying, I'm the agent who's going to bring it about. Indeed, God says uh, through the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Or going all the way to the end of the New Testament, something that was written after Jesus' earthly ministry. Revelation chapter 1 uh, 21 verses 1 and 5, John the Revelator, John the beloved disciple said, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Or Peter bringing these two ideas together of the destruction of what now is and the ushering in of that which has, which has yet to become. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and beginning at verse 10. A disciple who lived and listened to Jesus day and night for three years. Peter writes chapter of 2 Peter, beginning at verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, which means it will come at a time that you perhaps least expected. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up, that's fire, and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed for what they are. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the, of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heaven, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so that's the first thing. Jesus will change our world as we now know it, starting with judgment. Secondly, Jesus changes the nature of our relationship with him by means of his death on our behalf. He changes the nature of our relationship with him by means of his death on our behalf. Indeed, notice uh, verse 50. And Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. In the New Living Translation, we have it this way, I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. Now, this uh, baptism of suffering that Jesus is talking about here is seemingly a reference to his death on the cross on our behalf, which, of course, as you will recall, is the truth central to the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins. You have no gospel without that. <laughs> and so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
before Paul goes into a long dissertation on the nature of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he writes this. He said, I would have you uh, be reminded, brothers and sisters, of the gospel, the euangelion, the good news that I preached to you and which you received, <laughs> in which you stand, you stand in the truth of this gospel, and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. And Jesus' anticipation of, this death on, of his death on the cross, even before, he ha before it happened, Jesus says, caused him a great deal of distress. In fact, we probably uh, don't think about this uh, apart from maybe his struggle, as we are familiar with it, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. And in Luke's Gospel, where, where our text is found this morning, he's the only one, the doctor in the group, who, who refers to, to Jesus' uh, bloody sweat, the hemodidrosis, which happens even uh, to other people. It's, a, it's not an uncommon phenomenon when people are under incredible stress that the capillaries under their skin will, will break and, and mix with their sweat and which then affects bloody sweat or hemodidrosis. But Jesus says this anticipation of this suffering caused him great distress, which isn't difficult to imagine. Indeed, notice again in verse 50, and I have a baptism, as a, a baptism of suffering with which to be baptized, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And so notwithstanding the distress, he is nonetheless determined. He says it will be accomplished and accomplished on our behalf. And he talks about how we should consider how it changes the nature of our relationship with him for the better. Indeed, he's dying for our sins, isn't he? To remove that thing, in fact, you read in Isaiah 59 and verse 20, it says, it is your sins that keeps you from your God. And so fellowship and communion is broken because there's sin. It's an offense to God. <laughs> when we sin, we basically say, well, to put it nicely, no <laughs> to God. And he removes that by taking upon himself the righteous judgment that belongs to us. But in John chapter 12, Jesus talks about this and goes into some more detail. In John chapter 12 and beginning at verse 24, we read this in Jesus' words. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless, and he uses a metaphor, an illustration, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... <laughs> It bears much fruit. He's the grain that dies. And as a result, there is much fruit to be born. In verse 27, and now, here we go again, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. And now is the judgment of the world. 
And when I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. And then John's editorial comment in verse 33, and he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. What kind of death is that where you're lifted up from the earth, suspended like an insect, posted for everyone to see, less than human, writhing in death agony until death slowly comes in most cases of crucifixion. And of course, as we mentioned, it's Jesus dies on the cross. He's not dying for his sins. And see, indeed, he had no sin. This is the, this is the, this is the testimony of the apostles. In fact, you remember on one or two occasions, Jesus said to the crowd that were criticizing him, which of you accuses me of sin? And nobody can say anything. In fact, them wanting him to be destroyed is all based in pride and envy and sins of their own. Or in John chapter 8, Jesus said straight out, I do always those things that please the Father. And the disciples who lived with him day and night for three years knew that was true. Our 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul writing to the believers at Corinth, and for our sake he wrote, God the Father made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. <laughs> the Father makes him sin. The Father takes our sin and puts it on him. In fact, I think that's probably the thing that caused Jesus the most distress. What's that like when you're sinless and the sins of the whole world are put on you and you become sin that it might be judged that you and I might know deliverance from the penalty of sin just by trusting in Him and receiving deliverance, salvation as a gift from God. For our sake, God the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus didn't die for His sins. He died for ours, as Peter put it in his first letter. For He, Jesus Himself, bore our sins in His own body on the tree that is the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so Jesus dies for our sins, and that is, Jesus says in John chapter 12, that he might draw us unto himself. You've got a problem that keeps you and me apart, Jesus is saying. I'm going to remove the problem and draw you to myself. You should be flattered. And so should I. As Brennan, Brennan Manning famously put it, Christ loves you so much he'd rather die than live without you. And so Jesus changes our relationship with him by means of his death on the cross on our behalf. Finally, Jesus changes our relationship with others based upon how each of us relates to him. Jesus changes our relationships with others based upon how each of us relate to him. I don't, we don't hear much about this, but this is something that's mentioned in all of the Gospels. Notice again verses 51 through 53. And do you think that I have come 
to give peace on earth? No, but I tell you rather division. And from now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three in the house. And they will be divided, the father against the son and the son against the father. And the mother against the daughter. And the daughter against the mother. And the mother-in-law against the daughter-in-law. And the daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. And so even as Jesus himself says, Jesus causes division. This shouldn't come as any great surprise. In fact, think back on his life. He was the Prince of Peace, but not everybody wants that kind of peace. <laughs> they want their kind of peace. That kind of peace where nothing changes and you just sort of wash over it and pretend that evil's not happening. And Jesus doesn't bring that kind of peace. He brings real peace. He brings transformation. And people who don't want to repent and don't want to get right, Jesus is no good. <laughs> I read, and I've been, I've been quoting, who I, can't, I read stuff, and I can't remember where I read this, but it was so profound, and I've been repeating it nearly every day for the past two or three weeks. Somebody said, people don't repent, they spend the whole of their life defending their innocence. People don't repent of their sins. They spend the whole of their lives defending their innocence. It's not me. I didn't do it. And that's just, so Lord, just, just smooth it over. But Jesus doesn't bring that kind of peace. He brings real peace, real change, real transformation. And he calls on us to repent, metanoia, change your mind. You're going in this direction, now go in this direction. But when people don't want to do that, it causes division. In John chapter 7, we read about some of this division. John chapter 7 and beginning at verse 11, we read, And the Jews were looking for Jesus at the feast in, Jer in Jerusalem on one occasion, the Feast of Booze, as it happens, what happens in the fall of the year. And they said, Where is he? <laughs> and then we read in verse 12, And there were, there were many, there was much muttering about Jesus among the people. And while some were saying, he's a good man, others were saying, no, he leads the people astray. And so there was a division among the people over him. And so Jesus causes division. And that, Jesus says, even within family. Between those who choose to follow him and those who choose not to follow him. And notice again. Verses 52 and 53. And from now on, Jesus says, in one house there will be five divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided, the father against the son, the son against the father, the mother against the daughter. Maybe the daughter who becomes a follower and the mother is not a follower and now she's upset because her daughter's turned into some kind of a Jesus freak. And, can, and just imagine, you know, in Jesus' day, and in that time of transition, Jesus is a Jew. All of his apostles are Jews. The earliest church is a Jewish movement that says the Messiah that we've been waiting for has come. 
And a great deal of people said, no, he hasn't. And you can imagine what division this caused. You can imagine the father who comes home. And this is still happening, by the way, in places around the world. Somebody becomes a Christian in a, 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 a Muslim-majority village or nation. <laughs> Can you imagine? You come home and say, hey, guess what, guys? <laughs> I became an infidel. <laughs> and that's just about what it was in Jesus' day. And so he says, and five will be divided, three against two and two against three, and they will be divided, father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. By the way, he says five will be divided, and actually if you count up those references, father, mother, mother-in-law, and so forth, you get six, but the mother and the mother-in-law is the same person. It is five, two parents against three children. Son, daughter, and daughter-in-law. Jesus talked about this in a little more detail in Matthew chapter 10 and some of the further implications of what he's talking about. In Matthew 10 and beginning at verse 34, do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've, come to, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword, of course, it's a metaphor, an instrument of division. That cuts between this and that. For I have come to set a man against his father. And a, and a, and a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And whoever, and notice this. And whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. What an extraordinary thing to say. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And this is not to say, of course, that Jesus is against the family. He's not against the family. He's for the family. It's simply a matter of priority that God comes first in fact, anything we put in the place of God or before God is what is commonly referred to as an idol, treating some, some, some finite thing as if it were the ultimate thing and devoting ourselves to it. By the way, we do this with ourselves as well. In fact, Jesus in another place, if you're not willing to deny self, you cannot be my disciple. But it's all simply a matter of priority that God comes first above all else, even family. My family knows that. God comes first. I would have to say that because God comes first, I'm a better family man. <laughs> because God tells me to love my family more than myself. And so on. Indeed. Uh, we have responsibilities to our families, don't we? What is the fifth commandment? Does anybody know the fifth? Not, not the, not the, you know, I, I can't bear testimony on the grounds that I would incriminate myself. Not that fifth. The fifth, the fifth commandment. Right? Honor your father and your mother. 
God says that. Or in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, but if anyone does not provide for his family, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and has become worse than an unbeliever. And so whatever direction you're talking about, whether you're talking about honoring up or honoring down, as a parent, it's your responsibility to take care of the members of your family. And if you're a child, it is your duty before God to honor your parents. But still, in spite of that, God is God. And the first commandment is what? I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. I'm number one. And because Jesus himself is God, he requires of us the same unqualified devotion. And being devoted to Christ in this way can sometimes cause division, even between family members who are devoted to Christ while others may not be. And so Jesus wants us to be aware of these things and to know that none of us can be true followers of Jesus Christ and not experience radical change. Jesus, the change agent. Let us pray. Such extraordinary things, Lord. And if maybe we're not reading regularly or we're not familiar with these things, these things might sound really, really strange. We concern ourselves sometimes about doing what Jesus would do, or we ask ourselves, well, what would Jesus do in any given circumstance? And we may not be able to come up with a very accurate answer if we're ignorant of what Jesus did and what he said and what he taught and understanding it in its fullness so that we don't take one thing out of context without consideration of another thing with which that particular first thing needs to be balanced to get the full picture. And so, Lord, I pray that these things that we've considered this morning, what in some contexts are referred as hard sayings, that we might uh, take them and consider them and most importantly, ask ourselves honestly, and how do these things apply to our lives as we seek to follow the Son with whom you are well pleased? Help us, Lord, we pray in his name. Amen.